Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it now. We are on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L O U I E X I V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch at poppantheonpod.com, and our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, is available at Patreon.com/slash/poppantheon. This past week, we were talking a little bit about our sadness over the demise of the great Pitchfork last week. And also, Russ and I are breaking down our experiences seeing the Queen of Pop on her celebration tour recently. So go get that episode plus weekly bonus episodes of the show at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Also, gorgeous, gorgeous, my queer pop party is having two installments coming up. One is this coming Saturday, February 3rd at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. And the next one is February 17th at Los Globos in Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Tickets for both of those are available in the show notes of this episode. So I'm hoping to see some of you guys there. Obviously, this week is the follow-up to last week's Black Eyed Peas episode. Today, we will be focusing on the short but very bright and often problematic career of the Duchess herself, Miss Fergie Ferg. I can't decide whether Stacey Ann Ferguson, better known to us now as Fergie, was a total shoe-in, fated-to-be superstar, or one of the least likely pop success stories of all time. On the one hand, she's a conventionally pretty child star with a solid singing voice, serviceable dance moves, sex appeal, lots of grit and determination, and most importantly, undeniable X-factor. All typical and necessary ingredients for the job of pop diva. On the other, though, her rise to the top is a pretty improbable tale. From voicing Sally Brown on Peanuts, to founding a C-tier late 90s girl group that never really took off, to falling into serious addiction to methamphetamines in her 20s, to becoming, late in the game, the front-facing, campy, rapping, belting side piece of conscious rap come pop monstrosity of the Black Eyed Peas, to finally, after all of that, in her early 30s, releasing her debut kind of bizarrely blockbuster solo album, only to then duck out of the pop solo game almost entirely, with one unfortunate asterisk to be discussed later. In some ways, the rise of Fergie Ferg seems inevitable and made perhaps weird but absolute sense. In others, I can't imagine a more peculiar flash of pop dominance. Check it out. Stacey Ann Ferguson was born in Hacienda Heights, a small city on the outskirts of Los Angeles, to a pair of school teachers in the spring of 1975. Tenacious and determined to be a singer, as a child, Fergie found an agent through her dance school and landed work voicing Lucy and Sally in Peanuts cartoons. By age eight, she appeared on Married with Children and landed a role on Kids Incorporated, a Disney Channel variety show on which children would cover the hits of the day, from Madonna's Holiday to Paula Abdul's Forever Your Girl. Fergie spent six seasons on the show, honing her performance skills alongside future stars like Mario Lopez and Jennifer Love Hewitt before aging out at 14. She soon formed an R&B girl group, Energy, an acronym for New Rhythm Generation, later renamed Wild Orchid, with other Kids Incorporated cast member Renee Sandstrom and another child actor, Stephanie Rydell. In 1997, Wild Orchid released its self-titled debut album, a blue-eyed soul gospel R&B pastiche mostly written by the band, led by the single All Night I Pray. That 
That song charted at number 63 on the Hot 100, fueled by a music video directed by frequent Janet Jackson collaborator Marcus Nisball that was in high rotation on MTV and BET. The album itself failed to make much of an impression, charting at number 153 on the Billboard 200, but it did build some buzz, including nominations for Billboard Music Awards and Soul Train Lady of Soul Awards, and produced a couple more minor hits, including the number 48 peaking Talk To Me. After the release of their debut, Wild Orchid opened for 98 Degrees and NSYNC on tour and filmed a failed TV pilot about a group of crime-fighting pop stars who were secretly mermaids. The band became minor celebrities, working as guest spokesmodels and hosting a lip-sync competition show on Fox, but their brushes with fame didn't translate to success in the pop market. Wild Orchid's sophomore album, 1998's Oxygen, was a commercial failure and produced just one chart entry, Be Mine, which hit number three on Billboard's Bubbling Under Hot 100 chart. At the same time, Fergie's personal life was spiraling out of control. She'd started experimenting with drugs and developed an addiction to crystal meth, quickly spending all of the money she'd made working as a child actor partying in LA. Wild Orchid's label, RCA, wanted to capitalize on the teen pop boom of the moment and sent them into the studio with NSYNC's JC Chazé. But their third record, Fire, was scrapped after it was recorded. In 2011, Fergie left Wild Orchid amid her personal problems, but completed her commitments with the group, including a gig opening for the Black Eyed Peas. After meeting Will I Am backstage, the pair agreed to work on Fergie's debut solo album. Will I Am helped her shop solo music to labels, but nothing materialized. Instead, Fergie, then 25, detoxed and moved back in with her parents. She kept working with Will, joining him in the studio to record vocals on five tracks for the Black Eyed Peas' third album, Elefunk. At the urging of Interscope label president Jimmy Iovine, the group made Fergie a permanent member in 2002. You know what happened next. While on tour to support the P's second massively successful album with Fergie, Monkey Business, Fergie cut tracks for her solo debut on the band's studio bus, working with Will I Am to develop seven years' worth of material she'd been collecting. Will I Am served as the executive producer on the project, and the pair moved into a studio ranch in Malibu during a hiatus from the tour to focus on the album. Ron Fair, who'd worked on P's hit Where Is The Love, and is married to Fergie's Wild Orchid bandmate Stephanie Rydell, joined as an additional executive producer. Together, Will, Ron, and Fergie, along with other up-and-coming hitmakers like producer Polo de Don, completed 2006's The Duchess, a sonic melange that traded in the self-consciously ridiculous camp pop rap persona Fergie had established on hits like My Humps, while running the gamut from 80s hip house to mid-century pop soul illusions to AC rock radio plays to heartfelt ballads chronicling her years of addiction. Led by the hollow Batgirl by way of a New Orleans jug band as rapped by Missy Elliott single London Bridge, the Duchess rode a wave of the Black Eyed Peas' smash success. It ascended to the top of the Hot 100 within three weeks and has sold over 5 million copies to date in the United States alone. The Duchess itself sold 142,000 copies in its first week, then continued to grow as Fergie worked new singles from the set over a period of nearly two years, eventually selling 5 million copies. The Duchess spawned five top five multi-platinum singles, including the number five peaking Clumsy and the number two peaking Fergalicious, as well as 
two more number ones. The M.O.R. Nightmare, Big Girls Don't Cry, Personal, and the glorious shimmering ode to Fergie's far-fetched success story, Glamorous. Following the Duchess, Fergie returned to the Black Eyed Peas for two more albums before the group took a hiatus. Other than a stray platinum single on the Great Gatsby soundtrack in 2013, Fergie remained on a solo hiatus too, leaving 11 years between her solo projects, a period that feels like multiple lifetimes in pop. By the time she returned for 2017's follow-up, The Double Duchess, the center of pop had moved on from Fergie and the Peas' garish maximalist sounds. That album failed to capture much of the magic of its predecessor, and despite working with hitmakers like Dr. Luke and Circus, it, it didn't produce any significant hits. Its biggest single, the Iggy Azalea-esque LA Love La La, went platinum but failed to crack the top 20. Despite a video tailored for virality, with a cast of celebrity moms that included Kim Kardashian, Chrissy Teigen, and Sierra, the follow-up, Milf Money, fared even worse. Peaking at number 34, the song remains Fergie's final entry on the Hot 100. Since the Double Duchess, Fergie has largely receded from the public eye. In 2022, she made her first televised performance in four years at the MTV VMAs, Joining Jack Harlow on stage for a performance of his number one hit, First Class, which samples Glamorous. As a solo artist, Fergie has sold 27 million albums and singles. She has three number one singles and an additional two top five singles. She has one platinum album, seven platinum singles, and one gold single. Fergie has received six ASCAP awards, one American Music Award, one Billboard Woman in Music Award, one VMA, one Much Music Video Award, one New Now Next Award, and one Teen Choice Award. Fergie was ranked number 16 on Billboard's Top Female Artists of the 2000s, and in 2010, she received Glamour's Woman of the Year Award. Here with me to discuss the brief but remarkable reign of the Duchess Fergie Ferg is my pal, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Okay, so I'm back again with my friend, freelance writer and Pitchfork contributor, Julianne Escobedo Shepard. Julianne, welcome back to the show once again. Oh my gosh, thanks for having me. I love it. Yes, I love it too. These are some of my favorite sessions. I really do look forward to talking with you about any and everything. We've run the gamut, I think, and we're hitting an interesting little part of our journey together <laughs> through pop stars here with our girl, Fergie Ferg, and she love you long time. This is how you know we're real friends. Because yeah. <laughs> you agreed to do this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if I could bank anything from our friendship, it would be forcing you to do this episode with me, I think. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm cashing in all my chips. This is where I wanted this to culminate. But yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. You were just insinuating to me off mic that listening to the entirety of Fergie's discography, which to be fair, it's a brief journey, yes, left you feeling bad. <laughs> and I think that's like an interesting sensation to be left with. I'm curious if you could explain a little bit more about why a deep dive through the entirety of Fergie songs left you feeling quote unquote bad. I think the overarching theme here is just that remembering the mid 2000s and how easily and unself-aware certain people were about really serious cultural appropriation. It all happened right before people actually started talking about cultural appropriation and the mass culture 
And it was very gauche, I felt. I actually think that Fergie can be a decent artist, but so much of what she was doing just left a bad taste in my mouth again. Oh, okay. That was what I had to ask you is, did it at the time? Did it leave a bad taste in your mouth through the Black Eyed Peas music in 2006? Were you always kind of Fergie on the fence or agnostic or anti? Where were you as it was unfurling in the mid-2000s? So we're probably going to get into this, but... But when the Black Eyed Peas added Fergie, there was an overarching feeling among their old fans, particularly underground hip hop heads, that it was the moment that they just went completely south. And it felt gross that this incredible multiracial rap group had just completely shifted and made this white woman the front piece of their group Mm. in a very blatant turn towards getting famous. And I think a lot of people were really unhappy about it. And then when The Duchess came out, I was working at MTV. And MTV at the time had televisions in all of its cubicle areas. And so I heard the singles like one million times. Okay, so you were oversaturated with Fergie and you were very much aware of the ickiness of her meaning as this white front woman of this group who then through both her whiteness and her sort of pillaging of blackness became the perfect avatar cipher idea to rocket this group into superstardom in 2006. Yes, pillaging of blackness and also let's not forget that she was one of two very prominent white women at the time who were desperately trying to be cholas. Well, okay, (laughs) this is what I was going to bring up next, which is that we recently did a doubleheader on No Doubt and Gwen Stefani. Hazel Sills, obviously brilliant writer and editor, came on to talk about Gwen. Yes. And the reason I was kind of getting a read of the room on you is because I think the thing that both Hazel and I felt in recording the episode on Gwen Stefani, who again, definitely suffered from a lot of the same, let's say, controversial movements moves towards ethnic minorities in her work and presentation is that we ultimately felt like that all has obviously just gotten so much more prominent in our eyes as time has gone on, as we've all become more aware of these things. Not that we weren't aware of them at the time, but that ultimately like a lot of that music felt worthy enough to like stand on its own in a way that made it worthwhile. And the fact that it was so blatantly wrongheaded in its cultural appropriation is its own good thing in a way because it gives us a way to look back at a time period in which these were our attitudes and in which these white women were able to essentially do this unchecked Mm -hmm. and we celebrated them for it. So in a way, there was this feeling that we walked away from the conversation of, on the one hand, we both felt like at least that that music felt good detaching it, if you can, in any way from what she was doing in terms of cultural appropriation and that the cultural appropriative elements in and of themselves were important as cultural artifacts for people to remember what this period was like. Yeah. How does that feel to you in thinking about Fergie? Is it the same? Does the music feel less valuable inherently and thus the cultural appropriation feels worse? Is the cultural appropriation worse and toto to you? How does that stack up versus Gwen? Because Gwen's obviously an important superstructure to this music. Absolutely. I think I would agree that Gwen had the music and the other thing is, I mean, I remember this very distinctly among Mexican Americans that I knew and also on the internet that 
we felt like Gwen was our problematic fave. Mm, mm-hmm. There's a poem that I saved somewhere and I can't remember who wrote it, but this Chicano poet that wrote a poem about luxurious and we called her La Gwen. <laughs> and she grew up in Anaheim. Right. Anaheim has a really large Mexican-American Chicano population. And she, like Fergie, had women of color as her backup dancers, even aside from the Harajuku girls, which is all a whole other goddamn thing. There was some sort of at least it felt like she knew from whence she came, at least, mm. even though it was sort of icky. Mm. And my mom saw the luxurious video with Gwen wearing the T-shirt of La Vigen and it was cut in half. And I remember my mom freaking out and being so pissed because she was like denigrating La Vigen. And also she was this white girl denigrating La Vigen. Yes. But then so you get to Fergie and Fergie's music is very clearly an echo of what Gwen did because it came a year later. And Fergie is a white girl from the suburbs. She's from Hacienda Hills, right? Yes. So, you know, it's not an entirely white area, but there was something that didn't ring quite as true with her as with Gwen. And then also that coupled with her blatant theft of both JJ Fad and Missy Elliott's flow and delivery and style just felt very gross. So I remember being very cognizant of it feeling gross at the time, but not totally hating it because I loved Polo to Don <laughs> and he produced those songs. <laughs> yes, same. The singles really are, I mean, we'll get into them in detail, but there's a lot to talk about with them and they're interesting in their garishness. And I think that that's true with a lot of Black Eyed Peas music. I think the other thing I just want to say before we get into the details is one of the fascinating other contrasts when thinking about the sort of Gwen Fergie paradox is that Fergie had this explicit co-sign by a group of men of color. Yeah. There was this thing she was emerging from, whereas Gwen is emerging from a band of, of course, there's an Indian American member of No Doubt, but yeah. is mostly white men. Fergie is emerging from hip hop culture more directly than Gwen is. Gwen is emerging from rock ska, punk, whatever, culture. And Fergie, at least in terms of how she becomes known to us, comes into our minds as part of a hip-hop group, as part of a group of men that were, especially before Fergie was involved, but I guess still nominally were connected to hip-hop. So I think that was another thing that maybe runs against a little bit, or maybe just speaks more to the fact that so much about the way cultural appropriation works and how we interface with it is so much about intention and acknowledgement and that Gwen, for whatever reason, felt slightly less egregious, although her career, I think, has been largely tainted a lot by the discussions of cultural appropriation that have come largely in the wake of it. But it's interesting in thinking about the fact that Fergie really emerged with this giant cosign. I think part of the reason maybe that maybe the conversation was less acute about Fergie at the time was because it felt like hip-hop was the zone in which we came to know her, I guess. Right. I think that's a really interesting point, and I also think that that is why cultural appropriation is a complex web of issues. Right. And you're right, like intent matters the most. And I think that part of her solo career just did carry that baggage of, well, she's the person who ruined the Black Eyed Peas. And I think there was a little bit beyond the obvious racial concerns. I do think there was a tiny bit of sexism with that. Right. She just had that baggage. And when we knew her as I'm just a girl girl and Fergie started out as like a child star. Right. A child star (laughs) and then kind of an accent piece that rose to the top. Gwen was more explicit 
explicitly positioned as the face, the front woman, the reason for existing of No Doubt in many ways, and Fergie kind of unexpectedly became that. Although I guess expectedly, because she was a white woman and our culture is racist and horrible. Yeah. All right, so let's go back to Fergie's early life. I'm going to lay out some facts about like what we know about Fergie, and then I want to know if there's anything about her story that felt important to understanding any of the rest of the stuff that we're going to talk about to you when you were looking at this. So Fergie's born in Hacienda Heights, California, which is part of LA, as you were talking about. Her ancestry is English, Irish, Mexican, Scottish. Both her parents are teachers, which I thought was kind of interesting. And she basically was, in that classic tale, wanted to be a performer from a very, very young age. I was reading quotes and profiles of her from her mom basically being like, she was always dancing, she was always singing. And then basically at six, she saw Tina Turner, which is so interesting thinking about her as impersonating Black women in a lot of her music and her singing style and a lot of elements to her pop star character. She basically saw Tina Turner at age six Tina Turner apparently pointed at her in the audience and she was so responsive to that moment that she walked out of that concert and was like, I'm going to be a singer. I'm going to be a pop star. She was that enlightened, inspired by seeing Tina Turner. And then that began like a path towards child stardom, essentially. At age nine, she was cast in various Charlie Brown related cartoons as the voice of Sally. What's the matter, Charlie Brown? My dog is going to get married. Married? Does he understand the responsibility of getting married? How could he support a wife? He sleeps all the time. And in 84, Fergie gets cast in Kids Incorporated. Can you talk to us a little bit about what Kids Incorporated is and like if there's anything that's happening there that feels instructive to understanding Fergie? I can because I loved Kids Incorporated. (laughs) I watched it growing up. I would say that Kids Incorporated was a real precursor to like Glee and that it had a bunch of little kids who were really good at singing and dancing doing covers of the day with a loose and I mean, I'm going to say very loose narrative structure to give it a story. (laughs) And the show's always culminated in the end with the group of kids doing a cover song. The one that you sent me is Fergie doing Taylor Dane's Tell It to My Heart pretty well, honestly. Yes. It was a precursor to Glee and Kids Bop, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting seeing her do Tell It To My Heart because, I mean, Taylor Dane, another white woman who very much employed, like, black vocalizing, mm-hmm. you know, which becomes such a part of, I think, Fergie's singing style, which is this sort of yeah. version of soul singing that feels very karaoke in a sense she's able to sort of copy the style of soul singers without imbuing her singing with like a ton of actual soul and i think taylor dane is another example of somebody who like very much impersonated black soul singers a white lady obviously in her music so that was just a funny little connective moment i thought yeah for sure and also what's interesting too about both of them is she could do that song so well at like 10 or however old she was because they both have that sort of throaty almost like there's a frog in their throat low register and they have very similar voices in that way when they're singing sort of in the low end so yeah kids incorporated it was eventually aired on disney which i apparently had i don't 
remember how because we didn't have extended cable, but I loved that show. But I will say that Fergie was never my fave. My fave was always Martika. Of course. Who later went on to have her own pop career. Yes. She worked with Prince, this wonderful Cuban-American singer. Perhaps you've heard her song Toy Soldiers sampled by Eminem. Yes. Anyway, so yeah, that was Kids Incorporated. And I think that for like the story of a kid who's like, I'm going to be a star at five or whatever, that's where they go. That's where you end up. Yes. And of course, you know, we don't think we think of Fergie in the sort of Disney kid cohort, but it also sets up what turns out to be a very important part of Fergie's narrative, which is that she has a lot of personal struggles with drug addiction. I mean, there's this upsettingly tried and true narrative that occurs for many of these kids that emerge from this child's star track, which is Fergie is basically thrust into the spotlight before she's able to even go to middle school. And it really, I think, has a lot of negative impact on her psychological well-being. When we talk about Disney kids, we always are talking about Britney and Justin and Christina and Selena and Demi and blah, 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 blah. It was interesting, I guess, in going through the story to realize that Fergie is also one of these kids, one of these precocious, talented young kids whose parents totally bought hook, line, and sinker into thinking it was a good idea to put their kid on television at this age. We were just in an episode on Demi Lovato, and so this has just been heavily on my mind. No, for sure. And I think she started Kids Incorporated when she was eight, which is wild. And she has this quote where she was talking about how she learned to be a little adult. Right. And so once she grows out of Kids Incorporated, then she's hitting the clubs. She starts taking ecstasy in the early mid 90s, which is like, of course, everyone took ecstasy at the clubs in the early mid 90s. But that's a bridge to her taking crystal methamphetamine. And then she becomes addicted to meth. Right. Up into the 2000s. Yeah. And we'll get into that in detail. I guess one thing I want to ask you about before we leave Kids Incorporated is what are your memories of Fergie? Like you said, she wasn't your favorite. Do you have memories of what she was like? What was her role on the show? Were there anything specific about her talents as a kid that felt obvious to you? I mean, as you mentioned, there were other people you liked better. So I'm curious what your memories are of her. I guess I've always been the same person because I remember her. (laughs) She kind of annoyed me. She was like the perfect blonde girl with the perfectly sprayed bangs. There was something very other about her to me and I couldn't relate to her in any way. And she was perfectly cute and had this sort of very quintessential white all-American suburbs look. And there was nothing about her that I really liked that much as a 10-year-old <laughs> watching. And I actually didn't realize until we were researching this that Martika was Cuban. And I'm like, oh, right. Like I gravitated towards the Latina mm-hmm. because she reminded me of me and my cousins. I get it. Okay. Right, so yeah, right. but she was pretty perfect. And I think that persona probably fucked her up. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> Playing that beautiful, aspirational California blonde is probably yes. really stressful for a child. Yes. So sorry, Fergie. <laughs> yes. And also, I mean, that quote that you read jumped out to me too. Just learning how to be a little adult, how to be a people pleaser, never to complain, never to cry, never to show weakness, whatever. And like being robbed of your childhood. I mean, it's this tale as old as time and it needs to end. That's one thing that this podcast has left me with is child stardom needs to be illegal. It's insane what happens to these kids. Yeah, it's wild. It's just terrible. So what essentially comes out of Kids Incorporated, besides the fact that Fergie is the longest running cast member on the show, she's on the show for six of its nine seasons or something like that, is she, along with a group of other actors from Kids Incorporated, 
decides to start a girl group called initially NRG. Originally, it's her and this girl, Renee Sandstrom, and their friend, Stephanie Rydell. And I think Fergie's aspirations are always to be a singer, always to be a pop star. I think acting is a means to an end in that way. And I think appearing on the show is that for her. Eventually, the group shifts into various formations. And essentially, they end up getting a record deal. They're actually managed by Martika's mother, which I didn't realize was a funny (laughs) little fact at one point. But basically, they get a record deal in 1994 with RCA. Ron Fair is the group's A&R rep, which is fascinating because Ron Fair is also the person that ushers the Black Eyed Peas through their career. And this is before, obviously, Fergie and the Black Eyed Peas are connected. And they put out their debut album in 1997, and it's called Wild Orchid. I'm curious what you would say about Wild Orchid. What is Wild Orchid? Where do they fit into like the girl group landscape of this time period? And what is their music like? It's clear that they were listening to a lot of SWV Escape (laughs) but then there's all this gospel on it and you're like what is going on yes The cover of their first album, they have those very L.A. white girl bangs. And then they're like popping out all these gospels. Yes. It's very confusing to me. There was probably some cynical record label guy who was like, oh, let's take these white girls doing this very popular sound. Yes. And try to put it on pop radio, which plays white musicians more than black musicians. I don't know if that's what's happening, but. Oh, please. I think we can safely assume. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to take us to court over that, Julianne. Yeah, you're probably right. Okay, so that's what was going through my head while listening to these Wild Orchid songs. I will say they had some house remixes, though, that were pretty decent as far as that goes. (laughs) Yeah, overall, they weren't bad songs. I had never heard any of these songs before. It definitely has that patina of white women doing soul gospel art. R&B, which I guess in and of itself is a fascinating air text on Fergie because that is kind of Fergie's thing. She is definitely the white woman who gets put in front of blackness. She gets positioned as a accessible white version of blackness for people. And that's mm-hmm. a thing that seems to thread through her entire musical career. I mean, the debut single All Night I Pray, which peaks at number 63 on the Hot 100, very much gave me white girls doing Don't Let Go by Unvogue. Yeah. And even the sort of religious elements of it were really really interesting to me because Fergie, I think, as we come to know her in her persona, is almost like a godless creature. There's something about Fergie in the way that we knew her as somebody that kind of dispenses with anything related to spiritual good taste, spirituality, (laughs) the existence of universal order. Like, it's like there's something. (laughs) And it was just funny to hear her singing praise songs to Jesus. Right. Her later career has absolutely nothing to do with God. Although she does (laughs) seem to be a very religious woman. I mean, we'll get to this in one second, but part of the reason she's able to get sober is because she seems like she has some sort of communication with God. Right. And she had a Catholic wedding and it seems like she was pretty Catholic, which is also interesting because as a Catholic, let's just say that gospel isn't really in the tradition of the religion. Yes, right. Nobody's really singing gospel in a mass. She's mixing Christians. (laughs) 
she's invented her own syncretic persona. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. In the same way that the Black Eyed Peas are collapsing genre barriers, Fergie is collapsing barriers <laughs> of Christian sectarianism. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. That's actually a whole other podcast in and of itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I agree that like some of the Soul House songs are good. There was this song on the first album, Talk to Me, which was, I think their biggest hit. It peaked at number 48, which is kind of like Gloria Estefan-esque house record. Yeah. It's funny because, and this is something I'm going to want to drill down on you with the more canonical Fergie music, which is like, Fergie technically sings well at certain moments, and yet it always feels like an impersonation of something. And I think that that's true yes. here. I was listening to Talk To Me, and I was like, she's doing good soul pastiche, but it always feels like an impression. It never feels real. And I think that that's a thing that carries forth more effectively into her later music, because her later music isn't asking you to buy into it as not camp. Her later music is essentially on its face ridiculous and so there's a way in which her impersonating soul singers fits more squarely into what she does later whereas here it just feels a little bit hollow if that makes sense. No it totally does and it's kind of really sad actually imagining what she could have done if she hadn't learned to sing on a children's show <laughs> where their whole goal yeah. was doing covers. Right. Because there's almost a musical theater quality to it yes. where there's something a little too Christine sometimes about the way she does things and a little too canned. And I think that there has to be some element of just the way that she learned how to be a performer on a kid's television show, For which sure. is not to say that that will box you in. I mean, look at Demi, look at freaking Ariana Grande yes, or Miley Cyrus, but it seems to have influenced her in a big way. <laughs> I think the other thing that feels like important underpinning here is this is a very prominent moment for Black musical styles in mainstream pop. Yeah. The mid 90s, the late 90s, this is a moment where not only a you have Mariah and Whitney and Brandy and all of these people ascending to the top of the pop ecosystem. But R&B music is the lingua franca even of the impending teen pop boom, which is another thing that sort of affects Wild Orchid, I think. Yes. Even in the music of NSYNC and Britney and Christina that are right on the precipice of occurring after this, they're all doing impressions of Black soul singers. I mean, obviously, as the famous anecdote goes, Max Martin wrote Baby One More Time for TLC to sing. I mean, that was what he was envisioning. He was trying to copy yes. babyface Tony Braxton songs. This is a moment in which black and soul R&B styles are very prevalent and prominent in mainstream pop. So it's like, if you are an aspiring pop singer at this moment on the level that Fergie is clearly intending to, the ambition that she has to be a superstar, that's probably what you're doing, whether you want to or not, I think. Yeah, I agree. And also, I would like to say that to give Wild Orchid a smidge of credit, <laughs> or at least their A&R, whatever, they were trying to garner a Black audience as well. They performed on Soul Train. Yeah. They performed on Good Behavior, which was a UPN sitcom 
sitcom starring Sherman Hemsley of <laughs> the Jeffersons. And so I don't think that they were trying themselves necessarily to be the white escape or whatever, but <laughs> it seems important to know. Yes, it does. And also, I think <laughs> it's a funny time, too, because I think this plays into our conversation about cultural attitudes and awareness around appropriation at this time. Mm. I have this very indelible memory, and it's honestly an incredibly fun video to watch. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend going to watch it. This is obviously an earlier time period, but in the early 90s, there was a singer that many of you may know named Lisa Stansfield, who mm. was a soul singer, essentially. Like most people, I think there was sort of a joke that she was like the Tina Marie of her time in the sense that a lot of people heard Lisa Stansfield sing and assumed she was a black woman, but she was, of course, not. She was a white lady. And there's this incredible video of Lisa Stansfield performing her amazing single all around the world at the Apollo Theater. And the entire audience is black and they are living. They are just living for it. Yeah. And so it just was like a different moment. I feel like there was a lack of awareness or a lack of fixation on the cultural appropriation comment for better and worse. Here, you have a situation where obviously Fergie's career bears out some of the darker elements of this idea, but it was just a very, very different time in terms of our broader cultural awareness of what this stuff was. Yeah. I also think that in the mid and late 90s, we have this energy that's coming from hip hop culture. Hip hop is making more money than any other genre. Right. And you have labels like Bad Boy and Def Jam that are run by Black label heads. And there's a conversation that's emerging more about how much Black musicians had been screwed over right. by labels in the last 150 years of music. Yes. And so I think that that was actually a really necessary precursor to the cultural appropriation conversation that I think came to a big head in the late 2000s where everyone was talking about right. it. But I also think that, I mean, I love Lisa Stanfield. <laughs> <laughs> she can sing, okay? <laughs> it goes back to our earlier conversation about Gwen. It all comes down to intent and respect. I think that people have a broad sense of when people are coming at this from a place of reverence. I mean, this is the reason that someone like George Michael was so largely embraced by Black soul singers like Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston and all these people that they felt the steepedness of him in terms of his approach to soul music. It just kind of comes down to that. It's like, are you just Miley Cyrusing this or are you George Michaeling this or are you Lisa Stansfielding this? And I think that that's part of where it is. Right. All right. So Wild Orchid releases their debut album in 97. It is a very, very, very moderate success. It peaks at number 153 or something on the Billboard 200. It sells 108,000 copies. As I said, this single All Night I Pray goes to number 63. Another song called Supernatural, which is kind of like a new Jack Swing song goes to number 70. Talk to Me, this housey song is their biggest hit at number 48. They release a second album, Oxygen, in 1998. And it's, I think, a little bit more responsive to the burgeoning teen pop movement. At this point, you have the Spice Girls happening, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC are coming out. Mm. The single Be Mine weirdly reminds me of another girl group, Bewitched, Say La Vie. It sort of reminds me of that vibe a little bit.
where he has talked a little bit about how part of what made the group come apart was that they really wanted to be making this kind of blacker R&B music and then as the teen bop glossier version of that came into focus the label was pushing them more towards that sound and ever the doyen of artistic integrity Fergie was very disappointed in being crafted in that way mm. so that second album is a much less success I mean Be Mine peaks at number 103 the record does not do well so by the late 90s Wild Orchid is in no man's land I just wanted to read this line from the Wild Orchid Wikipedia because it is incredible and I'm sorry to be citing Wikipedia but I just couldn't have written this better yeah in 1999 the group filmed a pilot presentation as the stars of a television program called Sirens in the vein of female driven action programs like Xena Warrior Princess and Buffy the Vampire Slayer they portrayed crime fighting pop singers who were secretly mermaids the pilot was not picked up to series you're kidding you're kidding how did they miss that miss opportunity television strikes out again I know I would watch the shit out of that but that kind of speaks to what you're saying about they're being pushed more to be these pop stars and it's just simply not what they want to do although I really wish that that had been made I would kill to see that pilot please god open the vaults let's see that please yeah you know yeah obviously it is kind of laughable thinking about Fergie is not wanting to sell out. That is just really funny when you think about what Fergie's career is like. But okay, so Wild Orchid is doing a series of shows, I guess, trying to support this second album. It's clear that their career is kind of on the wane. And it's at that point, this is in the early 2000s, that Wild Orchid is on the same bill as the Black Eyed Peas and Fergie and Will meet at this radio show. And again, this is back when the Black Eyed Peas are still kind of a nominal alt hip hop group that is having some form of success, but really is, I think, seen by a lot of people as we covered this a little bit in our last episode but kind of like a notch down from sort of the kings of this space which are Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and Arrested Development and they're kind of in this conscious hip-hop space and Fergie I think very boldly walks up to Will and says I want to make a solo album and I want you to produce it and they have this whole chemistry but at the time Fergie as Julianne gestured at earlier is starting to spiral she's becoming more and more into drugs into going out she basically chronicles in a bunch of profiles I was reading that she very quickly spiraled out of control as Wild Orchid was waning in their success. She transferred from doing ecstasy to doing crystal meth and then basically for a year she just disappeared into a crystal meth hole. I watched an Oprah interview that was actually really interesting where she talked about it. I mean she said it was a quick but very very dark moment in which she was spending all her child star money doing crystal meth and was at a very very low point in her life and career. I was in a group called Wild Orchid and it just wasn't working and mm-hmm. so they tried to make us do different things and it just started being feeling inauthentic and and wasn't really the style that i felt that i wanted to go for and you weren't being yourself wasn't being myself and what i should have done was said girls you know it's really time for me to go on my own i need to fulfill this dream of mine to have a solo album mm-hmm. and i didn't know how to do that I didn't know how to deal with that, that confrontation. I wanted to please them. So you tried drugs instead? So hey, (laughs) why not try some meth? Rather than say what needs to be (laughs) said, I think I'll take drugs, Yes, I didn't know how to deal. So I got into a scene. I started going out and and taking ecstasy. You know, from ecstasy it went to crystal meth and Mm And if, at first, you need at first drug, high? with any drugs, with yeah. any drugs, it's you know everything is great at the beginning, and then slowly your life starts to spiral down. Mm-hmm. It almost killed you, right? 
Yeah. And 90 all of these, pounds. 90 pounds at one point. I think one of the most interesting parts of this, and maybe one of the things that I like the most about Fergie, and that we're going to talk about in a moment, which is the fact that Fergie becomes a pop star later in life, that she is like a female pop star that emerges into success in her late 20s and early 30s, as someone that's definitely seen some shit, is one of the more interesting facets of her pop stardom, especially in contrast to a lot of the cohort at this time, which included, obviously, Britney and Christina and all of these girls that had massive success in their teens. I think the thing that separates Fergie from them in some ways is the fact that one of her more interesting traits is that Fergie doesn't reach stardom until she's really lived life in this profoundly adult way. And I think the crystal meth era speaks to that. Also, we should emphasize that it wasn't common for people to talk about their struggles in this way. Mm. And so when she was really open about having had an addiction to crystal meth, it was really remarkable. And I remember having respect for that. And I still have a lot of respect that because we're talking about a time when everyone's still pretending they're virgins. Yes, you know exactly. (laughs) And then for this older woman who's already a huge pop star through the Black Eyed Peas coming out and saying, oh yeah, I was addicted to meth. Yes, like serious meth. Yeah, Yeah. like meth. And also (laughs) at the time, and I think probably still now, meth isn't looked at as being addicted to, say, cocaine. Yes. Meth is the drug that people make in bathtubs you know? Yes. And so it was really brave. I agree. Not to be like, oh, she's so brave, but I respect her for doing that because it was not a time when people were really doing that. Completely agree. So basically, the way that I understand the story is Fergie's addiction ends Wild Orchid once and for all. They're supposed to put out this third album that was largely produced by NSYNC's J.C. Chazé in 2001 called Fire that ends up disintegrating as a result of Fergie's drug addiction. They're dropped from opening for NSYNC on tour. And then about a year into her meth addiction, she essentially goes into a church. She describes it in detail. She's having paranoid delusions that like the FBI is chasing her and SWAT teams are waiting outside of this church. And she has this epiphany where she's like, if I walk outside of this church and there is no FBI or SWAT team there, I know that the drugs have fully messed my brain up and I'm going to stop. Yeah. And essentially she gets kicked out of the church, walks outside, sees that there's no FBI there. And that is the moment that she drops doing crystal meth forever. Yeah. And at that point, as we will have chronicled in our previous episode, and again, here we can bring in a little bit of the racial discussion, the Black Eyed Peas are graduating at Ron Fair's behest out of conscious rap and are being asked to pivot more directly towards mainstream pop. At the time, they have a female sort of fourth member, but she's not an official member named Kim Hill, who is a black woman, a soul singer, who's very much part of this conscious hip hop world that the Black Eyed Peas are originally emerging out of. And the label is attempting to ask her to kind of sex it up as part of the Black Eyed Peas new pop motif. And she essentially says, fuck you, I'm not doing this, and leaves the group. Yeah. And as again chronicled in our previous episode, a lot of Black Eyed Peas music prior to Fergie's edition is very much about a dynamic between the Peas and a female vocalist. Whether it's Kim Hill, whether it's Estero, whether it's Macy Gray, there's always this formula to Black Eyed Peas songs where it's like them with a female foil. That's been part of the thing. So there is this impetus on the part of the label and Will as they attempt to pivot to more pop 
production and sound on their third record, Elefunk, to once again try to employ a female vocalist. And the way that they come back into touch is someone reminds Willa Fergie. It happens to coincide with her cleaning up from meth, and they're recording the song Shut Up for Elefunk, which is a duet between Will and a female love affair partner who gets basically cast as Fergie. And there's so much chemistry, apparently, as the story goes, that they end up recording multiple songs for that album with Fergie and end up making her a permanent member of the group. We try to take it slow, but we're still losing control. And we try to make it work, but it still ends up the worst. And I'm crazy. What's gonna be your lady? I think I'm going crazy. Again, we're not going to go into detail about that right now. We already have done that on previous episodes. I guess my question I want to ask you about Fergie's rocket ship to fame through those first two Black Eyed Peas albums is what moments do you remember from Elefunk or Monkey Business that feel instructive to understanding how Fergie's pop sound and persona mutates that sets up the Duchess? Who is Fergie in the Black Eyed Peas in that era that feels important for us to tell the audience about in terms of understanding the solo artist that she becomes after joining the Peas? I mean, there was a very frustrating moment, I think, for P's fans. And I listened to their music, but at this time, I was living in Portland, Oregon, and it was very West Coast. We were straight up going to freestyle fellowship shows. Everyone's really into underground hip-hop. Yes, right. <laughs> I guess it was sort of a tenor across the country, but... For sure. We talked about this on the previous episode, how siphoned off hip-hop communities were and how there was ideas of realness and credibility and ideas of going against materialism that was sort of dominating what felt like commercial hip-hop or gangster rap and the 90s moving into commercial radio rap in the early 2000s and this sort of countercultural movement to that that eventually mutates into like backpack rap and Kanye and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I went to probably like 15 Project Blowed concerts <laughs> that year. <laughs> Not 15. <laughs> I mean, look, respect Project Blowed and Freestyle Fellowship. <laughs> AC alone. What up? Oh my God. Wow, that's a name I have <laughs> not heard in 20 years. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> yes. yes. So there's this explosion. Suddenly, Black Eyed Peas are everywhere. And not only that, their styles completely changed and have Fergie as basically the front person. And it's a huge shock. So you kind of get used to that. She's kind of a little bit more in the background, I think, than Monkey Business comes out. And then Monkey Business, we have My Hump, yes. which is a huge hit. It positions her as the flint that sets the Black Eyed Peas on fire in the pop arena. Yeah. And the sound sets the template for what she will go on to do on The Duchess. I want to talk about what that sound is, and I do think My Humps is probably the most important song to talk about here, but the derision of My Humps too feels really important. The proud, tacky, garish tastelessness of the whole thing feels very integral to the peas and then subsequently to the Duchess. Yeah, and the key with that too is it's a very sort of playground chant song. Yes. Sort of sing-songy. And the key to that and part of the problem with the peas at this time is that they're making pop hooks 
that aren't necessarily pleasant. Mm. They hit you over the head. You can't get them out of your ears. But they're not the kinds of hooks that you're like happy to sing along in the shower with. They're sort of a little bit flat as far as melody goes. They stay within sort of the same notes. And my humps is the pinnacle of that, plus the sort of playground sassy little kid thing. But also she's singing My Lovely Lady Lumps, which remains one of the most infantilizing thing I've ever heard a woman sing about her own breasts. (laughs) Like, are you fucking kidding me? Well, I think she is fucking kidding you. I mean, this is what I was saying on the last episode. This song is not about sex. It's not sexy. This is a joke. They're being silly. I mean, I think something that felt like it was missed by the critical establishment about the peas in general and about my humps in particular is they're in on the joke of this. They know this is dumb. I don't think Fergie is trying to actually be sexy in this song. It is supposed to be silly. And I think silliness is a really important part of both the Black Eyed Peas. They're proudly stupid. I mean, I said this in the last episode too. It's like, let's get it started literally contains the lyrics let's get stupid, let's get this. They know what they're doing. It's a knowing idiocy. And I think we can talk about the hollowness of the Black Eyed Peas hits. I think one of the struggles with it that doesn't pertain to my humps, but pertains to a lot of their hits is the blatant incorporation of samples and interpolations, which also becomes a really important part of Fergie's music. You think of Mm. Don't Funk With My Heart, which is another big Fergie showcase, just blatantly ripping I Wonder If I Take You Home. There's just this craven Frankenstein anything to get the hit on the radio. Are these songs rap? Are they pop? It doesn't matter. You can just pull anything from anywhere, whether it's Miserloo or it's Lisa Lisa or it's pop, it's rap, it's rock, whatever it is. There's just this throw everything in the kitchen sink vibe that makes the songs hit. It's an effective formula, but maybe it's part of why it feels bad is maybe the cravenness of the whole thing that sort of culminates in a song like My Homes. Yeah, maybe it's craven. I mean, my third eye take is that this is Will I Am being like, fuck you, record label. I'm going to do it. Right. And he's good at it. He is. And yes, obviously my humps is not meant to be taken seriously in any way, shape or form. But I think in the context of the culture, which at that time was very infantilizing of women, I think it just felt a little twisting the knife a little bit. Mm. (laughs) And looking at it in retrospect, the main problem was that it wasn't funny. (laughs) Mm. Even if its intent was to be silly, it just isn't funny is what your vibe is. No. And as a piece of music, it is dismal. Is that what also (laughs) separates it from a song like Milkshake? I mean, this is something I posed to Rob Hervilla on the last episode. I was kind of just Mm. like, where's the line between Milkshake and My Humps? What is the demarcation? Well, Milkshake is a good piece of music. (laughs) (laughs) I think the milkshake beat by the Neptunes is just undeniable. And I think... Khalees is cool. Is that part of the issue too? Khalees is cool. There's something actually sexy about it. Edge. Sexiness. Yes. There's an edge to it. Yes. And also Khalees' voice is just much different from Fergie's. Right. My milkshake brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Damn right. It's better than yours. I could teach you. Fergie, her voice is very clear. Mm-hmm. Khalees has that rasp. Yes. And so it does add more edge to it, I think. Yes, yes. That's an interesting question, though, and it's very devilish of you to pose it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm nothing if not a uh, demon from the underworld here to challenge everybody's expectations and thoughts about my humps. That's why I exist on this planet. Yes. 
2024 has been an absolutely bonkers year for pop music. It feels like every single girly in the universe, and fine, even some men, has dropped a new record. It's been a lot to process. Thank God our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, has got you covered. Every single week, we drop a bonus episode of this show, going long on everything from Taylor's The Tortured Poets Department to Beyonce's Cowboy Carter, Dua Lipa's Radical Optimism, Casey Musgrave's Deeper Well, Ariana Grande's Eternal Sunshine, Billie Eilish's Hit Me Hard and Soft, Charlie XCX's Brat, and all the the other big albums from this year, and all with a coterie of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. When we're not talking new albums, we're digging through new singles on our new music speed rounds, deep diving on classic albums, recapping all the big tours, and so much more. All that, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and tons of other great perks. So sign up at the icon tier now by going to patreon.com slash poppantheon, or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also now subscribe for the audio only directly in the Apple Podcasts app. I guess maybe the last question I want to ask before we leave this conversation about the peas and talk about the Duchess is what is Fergie's persona on record? Who is Fergie in Black Eyed Peas music? She's putting forth that she's just the down-to-earth homegirl who can sing. Mm. That's what I think. But there was something very belabored. Right. That's always how her singing sounds. But I feel like in the context of these tacky, campy songs, it suits like these songs. But because the Black Eyed Peas are all kind of like a belabored pop experiment, it works there in a way that, for instance, in Wild Orchid, it's almost more garish. The Black Eyed Peas needed a singer like Fergie that's almost doing an impression of a singer. Yeah. Is she a rapper? She raps. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> I have to give her a little bit of credit because she actually has good breath control and she can flow. She has a good sense of delivery. Yes. Is the delivery hers? Mm. Not always. Okay. I think that's a good answer. <laughs> but I think she is a serviceable and capable person who raps. Yes. Okay. I think that's very, very diplomatic. And I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> so I think the point of this entire segment of the conversation is that I believe by the time monkey business cycle is done, it is very widely understood that Fergie is the main feature of the Black Eyed Peas to most pop audiences. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, going back and looking at the videos that I was saying this last episode, she has star quality. When you're watching music videos of the Black Eyed Peas songs, you're looking at Fergie. She's got something going on that makes you want to pay attention to her. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's not for good reason, but for whatever reason, you are drawn to her. And she's a breakout superstar from this music. Yeah. And that leads to 2006's debut album, and perhaps the only canonical Fergie album, and we'll talk briefly about the other one in a little bit, (laughs) The Duchess. Now, first off, Julianne, here's my first question about The Duchess. Why the fuck is this album called The Duchess? Spelled D-U-T-C-H-E-S-S. So Duchess Sarah Ferguson, the redhead of the royal family. Her name is Sarah Ferguson. Fergie is Stacey Ferguson. It is definitely a play on that. What does adding the T bring to the party? It just gives it flavor. (laughs) I actually don't know. Do you know? (laughs) Is it a reference to like Dutch's like past that Dutch kind of vibes? Is she going for like, I'm the hip hop Duchess as opposed to the British Duchess? Maybe. If it is, it's a reach, obviously, but no one really associated Fergie with smoking blunt. But they did associate her or she wanted to position herself as part and parcel with hip hop culture, you know, which in its most flattened perception could be about smoking blunts. So my theories are one, she's just making a play on Duchess Sarah Ferguson and then two someone at the label didn't know how to spell (laughs) 
those are my two. <laughs> Honestly, either seems plausible in this particular milieu. Yeah. Or Double Dutch. Maybe it's a reference to Double Dutch. Well, the second record is called The Double Duchess. Yeah. So the lead single is the song called London Bridge. It is unlike the P songs produced by Polo to Don, who is a wonderful producer, like a hip hop cum pop producer, essentially. How would you describe London Bridge for his debut solo single? It's like a third generation Xerox of a Missy Elliott song. Mm, interesting. She's really doing the Missy delivery on it. Mm. When I come to the club, step aside. Oh, shit. Pop the seats, don't be heavy in the line. Oh, shit. VIP, cause you know I gotta shine. Oh, shit. I'm Fergie Ferg, give me love you long time. Oh, shit. That said, I think it's a pretty good song. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, this song bangs. I still play this song a lot. Yeah. I'm interested in the Missy Elliott comparison. I think her flow reminds me so much of Missy. That's very true. The main things that come to mind to me with London Bridge are, of course, Hollaback Girl. Yes. That sort of driving Marshall, almost marching band beat aesthetic was hugely influential on the sound of this song. And weirdly, Julianne, the jug band vibe of the whole thing of our girl Beyonce's actual debut single, Work It Out. Mm, that's true. I mean, obviously Gwen was the template for this, but I yes. wouldn't be surprised if Beyonce was also because clearly she's trying to get into this space. Yes. And 2005, Beyonce and Gwen are dominating. Yes. So I think that makes sense. I think that tracks. Yes. I think this song is fire. Oh, yeah. I love the beat. Yes, the beat's fire. It is hard to overstate how great Polo de Don was, especially during this era. And still is, but yes. he's a Trumpian whatever. No, I did not know that. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Wow. But this was kind of his breakout pop hit, more or less, right? This was his breakout pop hit, which enabled him to go on and give us Throw Some Ds and other Song. Yes. So yeah, if this song came on in the club, I would probably lose my shit. So yes, I like the song. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> so we're getting there. Another artist that was brought up in some of the reviews I was reading of London Bridge are Amy Phillips and Pitchfork kind of saying that she feels the effects of MIA's first album on this song, which I kind of thought was an interesting thing. I was like, okay, I guess I can hear that. Like the spareness of it. It's basically in the style of my humps. It has that feeling of chantiness. It's not particularly melodically driven, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at here. It's driven by catchphrases. I'm such a lady, but I'm dancing like a hoe. Yeah. I'm Fergie Ferg and me love you long time. What the fuck is a London Bridge going down? I guess maybe that's another question I want to ask you. What is a London Bridge going down? Maybe it's like a dental dam. I don't know. <laughs> Fergie's by, so I think maybe it's a celebration of just oral sex in general, because you can't tell, is she going down? Because yes. in the video, there's a a lot of her on those what are the Westminster Abbey yeah the palace guards yeah so you know there's an implication of oral sex but it's also deliberately nonsensical yes I think I think so too and I can see the MIA comparison actually because of the chant and also the cacophony and I think that that was the formula that even with milkshake it was pretty common in this era of mid 2000s yes for sure <laughs> We have egregious cultural weirdness here, though. I mean, Love You Long Time followed by the gong hit 
is something to behold. And then I didn't even realize what she was saying on the bridge, but I feel like she's affecting Patua and saying, me like a bullet type, you know they come in right. Fergie like them long time, my girl support them right. She's sort of speaking in a Patua accent, I think at that point. I mean, everything goes in this era. <laughs> she definitely is because she also affects a patois on one of the album cuts. Imagine being on a song with Rita Marley and you no, do a patois. I can't. <laughs> it's just like the Gwen conversation. It's incredible what we were just sort of letting happen at this moment. And I think it speaks to this really weird part of Fergie's career, which is, again, she replaced this black woman, became the successful white face of this people of color hip hop trio, then goes on to have this rap adjacent pop career where she's able to adopt any form of blackness that feels comfortable to her at that time and suffer very little consequences for it. Do you remember people criticizing her openly at the time for this in a way that had any sort of a impact on her success? No. No. Gwen got it a little bit with the Harajuku girls. Yes, more. Which opened the door for Fergie to do the fucking Me Love You Long Time. I think it's just crazy that this shit was happening. But because it's just that one part, and I think there was in the early 2000s just a sort of line of white women. You know, I think about Christina Aguilera, mm -hmm. who is a white Latina, and in Can't Hold Us Down, she has this video where she's dancing in a very insane <laughs> fake tan. Yeah. And like all of her backup dancers are black and brown women. And I think that these things were put to the American public and no one really thought it through other than the bottom line. Because mm -hmm. it wasn't until the internet and social media blogs really started pointing these things out that people started talking about it in a big way. Yeah. All right. So London Bridge goes to number one is a smash hit song and leads to an absolute cavalcade of hit records from The Duchess. The Duchess is an incredibly successful album. I want to take these singles in order and talk about them and then we can talk about the rest of this album. The next single is called Fergalicious. As you mentioned at the top of the conversation, it interpolates JJ Fad's Supersonic. Supersonic motivating rhymes are creating and everybody knows that JJ Fad's it is essentially celebrating the moment where like rap and electronic dance music met in the late 80s with Africa Bombada and Salt and Pepper and whatever. What do you think about Fergalicious? How is this song expanding upon the palette of London Bridge? Is it in conversation with London Bridge? What does this song present to us about Fergie Ferg? I think it's in conversation with it. Obviously, the electro thing I think was big in this year. And it also further tries to solidify her as a rapper. Yes. Definition make them boys go loco. They want my treasures, so they get their pleasures from my boat. So you can see me, you can't squeeze me. I ain't easy, I ain't sleazy. I got reasons why I tease and boys just come and go like seasons for delicious. But you can <laughs> wrap the entirety of Supersonic over for delicious. She took verbatim the flows on the verses from JJ Fad, and it's sort of like a perfect summation of what she's doing for most of her career, which is a facsimile. And this is a song I did not like at the time for two reasons. One, it played constantly on the television at my job at MTV. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't love the beat. And here's a little personal uh, reveal. So at this time, I had a sort of exercise eating disorder. So I was going to the gym like two times a day. Mm-hmm. It was a very <laughs> dark time mm-hmm. of my exercising. Yes. <laughs> because the music was all so bad. This song just reminds me of Spin Class. And actually, it's an incredible Spin Class song. I bet. <laughs> it's kind of made for workouts and maybe choreographing dances in your basement too but as a pop song it's just like a little piece of candy yeah Check it out. I actually always really liked this song. I mean, I completely concur with everything you're saying, and I think it's a really great example of the way that Fergie songs are sweet going down in some ways, but then leave you feeling nasty. When you think about it, and you think about the sort of jacking of the JJ Fad song, or you think about how utterly stupid it is. I mean, literally one of the motifs that it introduces that is very much a trend across this album is the spelling of things, which again, I feel like is Holla Batgirl runoff. Yes. There's a big motif on this album where Fergie is spelling shit or Fergie and Will I Am are spelling shit, whether she's spelling her name or the entire bridge, which is Will I Am essentially spelling tasty and spelling delicious and like spelling yeah. spelling various words. I appreciate the sort of proud stupidity of some of the Black Eyed Peas and Fergie's work. And I think this song is a good example of, this song is dumb. It knows it's stupid. It's trying to be dumb. I think your purchase with that affects how you feel about Fergie at the end of the day. But like, this song is so garish, so ridiculous. It's blatant (laughs) ripoffness is so ridiculous. But I think that's fun. This song works for me as just pure whimsy. It's idiotic, but it's fun. And I think if you just kind of give yourself over to that, you can have some enjoyment of these songs in a way that if you think about it at all, you probably won't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. At the very least, you can appreciate that JJ Fad got paid over it. (laughs) Yes, 100%. And I think that brings up another point I want to bring up that's a motif on this record, which is this kind of crate-diggy sensibility. I mean, there's definitely a sense of sampling elements of hip-hop history that are interesting. I mean, I don't know if that's Will's doing, if that's because for Fergie herself is a hip-hop head, but there are certain moments on this record that feel like they are celebrating elements of hip-hop culture, or pop history more even generally speaking, that feel weirdly intelligent or historically minded in a sense. Yeah, and I think that this is a time too when, I guess it's hip-hop's 30th anniversary, this is a time when people en masse are really looking back, Missy Elliott especially, to the origins of hip-hop. Totally, totally. It is a little behind the zeitgeist, but definitely in conversation with it. <laughs> All right, so that's second single, Fergalicious, goes to number two, another smash hit. Third single is Glamorous, also produced by Polo. What is your galaxy brain on Glamorous? Does this present a new version or a different version of Fergie? Is this a continuation of what we're talking about? Are there things you like more or less about this song than the other singles? Well, it's different because it takes itself more seriously. Yes. This song was very problematic for me in that it really made me like Fergie a lot. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? I fucking love this song. I know, this is a great one. I still love this song. Her best song? Absolutely her best song. Living my life. 
And it really shows too that when she wasn't sort of self-consciously trying to make fun of herself and life, when she actually was leaning into it and really using her best talent, which is singing, yes. she really fucking is a great artist. The song is incredible. Paulo's beat for it is just shiny and pretty. <laughs> yes, very light and airy. And again, kind of celebrating the moment where hip hop and house and dance music meet. Yes. It's another record that does that differently than the JJ Fad rip on Fergalicious, but it kind of celebrates that moment as well, I feel like. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's in conversation with Luxurious. <laughs> mm-hmm, for sure. By Gwen Stefani, it's like an answer to it. Yes, for sure. It's in conversation with Luxurious, and it's also a very classic kind of pop origin story. This speaks to Fergie as an interesting pop figure who's emerging with her debut album in her early 30s. This is someone who has lived life. I think this is very much her make it happen, or like her Jenny from the block. This is like her, I came from nothing, and I've been through some shit, and I'm having success song. And that's a really winning element of the song, because I think there is, weirdly, I have the sensation, maybe you feel less this way because you're less warm on Fergie in general, but when she gets into this mode, there is a part of me that kind of is happy that she won because she has been through so much and like that's so well worn even just looking at her I find in these music videos she's not a young thing she's somebody that has experienced life like you can sense her (laughs) pathos weirdly through this ridiculous music and I think that there's a moment on this song where you really get to like savor and celebrate this very strange trajectory through pop music paid off in this kind of unexpected way she's kind of an unexpected solo pop superstar in this moment and I think this song represents that the best And it also represents another fundamental like necessity in Fergie's success, but also problem, which is the Will I Am factor. She needs Will I Am to produce a lot of her music, and obviously Will I Am is a very successful producer at this time. But when Will I Am opens his mouth on a lot of these songs, it can ruin shit. He's maybe an expressly bad rapper, a purposely bad rapper. It becomes kind of his thing to be bad. I mean, you and I spoke about Rihanna. I'll never forget the most egregious example of this is the song Photographs from Rated R, which he produced, where it's like this heartfelt, lilting ballad of love lost, and then all of a sudden and Will I Am just starts rapping and it sounds like the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard in your entire life. And it's really nice on Glamorous to hear what it would sound like to have an actually charming, smart rapper be Fergie's foil instead of Will I Am. Yeah. Because you have Ludacris here and Ludacris is just one of the best guest rappers of this era. He's charming. He's warm. He's smart. He's all of the things that Will I Am simply cannot be. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that part of Glamorous as well. I agree. You deserve nothing but all the finer things. Now this whole world has no clue what to do with us. I got enough money in the bank for the two of us. All right, so that's another number one hit. Now we're getting to the fourth song, which hilariously Julianne texted me this morning and said she had never heard before this morning, which is insane to me because this is, I think, the biggest hit from this album. It is the most streamed song from this album, and it is extremely successful. It is Big Girls Don't Cry, parentheses, personal, which is essentially like an M.O.R. AC radio rock ballad that would be too down the middle for even Kelly Clarkson or something like that. This song is 
the biggest mystery of this record to me of all. I really can't tell whether this is supposed to be taken as straightforward, whether it's supposed to be camp in its sincerity, or whether it's just straight up awful. I can never figure this song out for myself. <laughs> so I'm sure I've heard this song before, but I've never consciously heard it. And I think part of the reason is that when this album came out, I worked at MTV. They weren't playing it on MTV Jams, which we had it flipped to. And they were not playing this on Hot 97. No. It is fascinating to me that she has this whole other thing going on on this song, which is, like you said, just so adult contemporary. So like, what is going on here? It doesn't seem to fit in any of the other songs, really. Well, it opens up a door, I think, to like a couple discussions more broadly about this record. One is the long tail of Love Angel Music Baby, i.e. these bespoke pop records that are genre omnivorous. The thread, I guess, is the personality driven pop star at the center of it but they're willing to try anything. It's kind of like these anything goes pop records. It's a real style that exists at this particular moment. I think in the wake of the sort of art pop aspirations of Love Angel Music Baby. Yeah. This record beyond the songs that we've spoken about so far, which you could kind of thread together as hip hop adjacent, from here goes in a lot of weird directions. It's definitely a something for everyone sort of approach that feels indebted to Love Angel Music Baby. And I think the other thing that this song brings up for me, which is like, a motif that seems to appear in a lot of the rest of this record is this weird fascination with mid-century pop music. So obviously this song doesn't sample Big Girls Don't Cry, which is a famous song by the Four Seasons from the mid-century. But this album does a lot of interpolating and sampling songs from that period. The fifth single is a song called Clumsy, which very openly samples The Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard. Mm -hmm. There's another song called Here I Come, which goes for the Temptations, Get Ready. There's this whole sort of mid-century pop and R&B and soul music motif also that runs through this music, interestingly yeah. enough. I think Clumsy is one of the best songs on this record as well. Another song about silliness, where the overblown campy persona works in her favor because the song is about being silly and stupid and falling all over yourself. Fergie is a hot mess, and this song is about being a hot mess, so I kind of enjoy that one a lot. Yeah, I love that song also. And it's another example of Fergie just doing what she does best, which is singing. Yes. She has a really good vibrato on the chorus. Yes. It's great. I love the song. The beat is really, really good. William kind of stayed out of his own way. Yes. I mean, respect to the song. Yes, good song, good song. <laughs> and then there's a couple other songs on this record that I just wanted to bring up where she, in the terms of her sort of bravery and addressing her addiction, she speaks about it in this way that's kind of admirable. There's a song called Voodoo Doll, which again, complicated song because it's like a raga dance hall reggae song. So we have that going on. But it's all about the devil in her brain and her subconscious coming back to haunt her. And it's about her kind of paranoid state while she was on Crystal Meth. You know, it's funny when you think about the singles of this album and how silly they are. There's a couple of emotional moments here. And then there's the song Losing My Ground, which she apparently wrote while she was on meth. And it's all about how she wakes up in her car and she doesn't know what day it is. And she's completely confused. I 
it's funny because we don't remember this album as containing any of those themes, but they are here. Yeah. And I thought that that was a really interesting part of this album that I didn't remember. And the narrative with that song actually is something that she wrote for Wild Orchid and she brought it to her Wild Orchid bandmates and they immediately, <laughs> after hearing it, made her go to rehab. <laughs> they were like, you're fucked up. But she, at the time, she didn't want to admit to being addicted to meth, so she told them that she was bulimic instead. Mm. And that extended her time with an addiction for, I think, another year because she was not telling people what was actually going on. Oh, so yeah, she wrote that song for Wild Orchid and her bandmates were like, let's get you to a clinic. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, thank God. Yeah. So they're, her Wild Orchid bandmates are credited as writers on this song. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't even notice that. But yeah, I was honestly like moved by that. I was like, okay, she's really trying to say something. Like she wants to inspire with her story and I appreciate that. And then she goes to the hidden track two songs later called <laughs> Israel Nice. Maybe we can take a ride that says literally nothing. The lyrics are just maybe we can take a ride. It says nothing about Israel. We don't know why it's called that. You're like, what the fuck is going on with this song? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason it's a hidden track. Oh, it's hidden and it should have stayed hidden, I think. Hidden. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. There's also a really, really funny song about Perez Hilton called Pedestal, which is, I mean, talk about an album that is trapped in 2006. The lyrics are, well, I've paid my dues. I'm a seasoned dame. So why you got to throw salt in my game? You hide behind your computer screen so that you don't have to be seen. How could a person be so mean? <laughs> there's a lesson in that song for all pop stars, which is don't write a song about someone who's bothering you at the time because you're going to feel so stupid 20 years later. Yes. Like, who cares about Perez Hilton? No one does. No one. No. <laughs> Well, the other thing Pedestal brings up, which is like maybe one of the last things I want to talk about in terms of the Duchess, is there's this way she says A's and like sings, and it goes back to like, is her singing a joke about singing? She goes like, Pedestal. She has this way of saying things. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? What is that? I spent a lot of the album trying to discern what that is. Is that her like doing jazz? Is there some sort of thing she is attempting to do that just comes across as funny but is sincere? I can't figure that part of it out. Maybe it's because she's like an LA girl. She did name her son Axel. Yeah. This is just her homage to Guns N' Roses. Yes. I have no idea. <laughs> it's the strangest thing that it comes up a lot. It's almost like a jazz intonation. Blanket. I can't do it right, but it's there. Just just take my word for it. Anything else you want to say about the Duchess before we move on? Absolutely not. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as I mentioned, this is a absolute juggernaut success of an album. It was five times platinum in the US. It sells 12 million copies worldwide. It has three number one singles in London Bridge, Glamorous, and Big Girls Don't Cry Personal. Furcalicious goes to number two. Clumsy goes to number five. This record is massive. What is your perception of Fergie's fame at this point? Is Fergie an A-list pop star in your mind as this album cycle concludes? Where do you see Fergie in terms of just sheer pop stardom as this cycle comes to an end? I mean, she was huge. I mean, sure. Sure, she was an A-list pop star, but the music that she was doing, I don't think was really seen as super serious. Right. So think about The Emancipation of Mimi was released the year before and was the biggest album of that year. Yes. And obviously Mariah has like 20 years on this gal, but she would never be a Mariah or even a Beyonce, I think. Where is she versus Gwen? She's not a Gwen. Mm. I think Gwen was already so big right. and Fergie didn't have enough time to become that big and become 
become that embedded into people's brains. Mm. She was definitely an A-lister, but she wasn't like the icon. And I think Gwen at this time is inching towards icon. And also everything Gwen did was so unique at that time. Right. Gwen was like the cool kids pop star. Yes, exactly. And Fergie almost came off a little bit as an also mm. ran. It's just fascinating because this record by sheer numbers is bigger than Gwen's album. Yeah. The number of number one hits, the actual units moved. This album is a bigger album, which is funny to think back on because I do think you're right and Gwen always seemed like a bigger star and Love Angel Music Baby was more of kind of like a cool thing to like than The Duchess was. But this record was just huge and it's crazy to remember that. And I also wonder how we remember this record if things had been different in terms of Fergie's solo career because what happens next is a couple years later, Fergie returns to the Black Eyed Peas for another massive run of success through the EDM era with Boom Boom Pow and I Got a Feeling and all these big hits and doesn't really ever come back with any solo material aside from a stray soundtrack song until 2017. So part of me wonders, what would we think about The Duchess if it was the first in a series of albums? Do you think if Fergie had come out with another similar sounding album in 2008, do you think this would have been like a sustainable solo career? Was this album a lark? I guess we can't really ever answer that question. I could kind of see it going either way, but I think the point of the matter is it's hard to think of it as anything other than that because of nothing coming after it, basically. Right, exactly. I mean, I think it's possible that she could have had a more successful solo career, but I mean, honestly, why? She was so big with the Black Eyed Peas. They had such success that there almost wasn't any room for her to do another solo album and have a family and you know what I mean? Right. And that she's already in her early to mid 30s when the success is happening. It's not like she's a 20 year old who's just got boundless energy. And I think that does make it different. You know, I said this to Hazel in the Gwen episode. She's part of this really interesting cohort of mid 2000s pop phenomenons. Gwen, her, Nelly Furtado, all emerging from spaces other than solo female pop divaness, coming in to make these one big crossover pop albums and then essentially abandoning pop stardom after that, more or less. Obviously, Gwen had the sweet escape, but beyond that, they all basically retreat from doing it after that. And it's interesting because they're all slightly older. They all are coming from other careers. They've had other music journeys prior to coming into this moment. And so it's sort of a different experience than entering pop stardom at age 16 or 20. Like, I think there is this feeling of you are wanting to become a mother. You are wanting to start a family. There's only so much you can do. And maybe the pop crossover moment was a lark in some sense. For sure. And there's also something that I don't think probably gets talked about enough is as an older woman, I can see just not wanting to deal with the bullshit anymore. Yeah, right. There's so much bullshit. And if you are even a tad older, they give you even more shit. But, you know, who wants to be 35 and have some shitty ass 24 year old A&R shithead yeah. telling you what to do? No one wants that. So I could see her being like, fuck this, I'll just stick with the peas and like live my life and rake in money off sinks from the Duchess and like do what I want to do, you know? And I respect that. <laughs> Although coming off of an album this successful, she probably could have done anything she wanted in 2007, I mean, this was like, yeah. you know, I think the other thing that's really notable is she returns to the peas in the late aughts and the early tens to great success. But the thing also is that music changes so much. I think Fergie is also such an emblem of a specific moment in crossover hip-hop culture dominating pop. By the time that second huge piece run is done, 2012, 2013, the kind of figure that Fergie was, the kind of music that she made, just kind of isn't the thing anymore. Right. We're in the Gaga era. We're in this era of these massive, icy house 
music, dance floor filling diva, 135 BPM yeah. pop stars. It's like, who is Fergie in that sense? I mean, I guess there's a way in which you could sort of see the connective tissue between Fergie and Kesha. Yeah, of course. Kesha's definitely feels like she exists in Fergie's shadow. So maybe there's a version of Kesha music that Fergie could be making at that particular moment. I don't know. Yeah, but Kesha was already making it. Right, exactly. It is actually interesting and maybe telling that for Double Duchess, she collaborated a lot with Dr. Luke and Circuit. Yes, for sure. Want to talk about Double Duchess for a second? So this is her 2017 follow-up. It is an absolute flop. It sells 40,000 copies. It's apparently a visual album, which I had totally forgotten about until I was doing research (laughs) for this episode. I listened to it exactly once when it came out and then once in preparation for this episode. Anything you want to say about Double Duchess? (laughs) The things that I find weird about Double Duchess, other than how all over the place it is and how bad some of it is, like shockingly bad. bad. It's a hard listen. It's really hard. Okay, so on You Already Know, she collaborates with Nicki Minaj. And in my opinion, if you're going to do a song with Nicki Minaj on which you're rapping, you're probably going to want to bring your A game. Yeah. And she did not. And also she sang wildly off key on the hook. (laughs) It's shocking, actually. That's right, baby. And that also has a Rob Bass sample. Right. So she's still trying to do the old school hip hop sample thing, but it's not working. It's limp. That song makes Fergalicious sound literally like the pinnacle of pop history. <laughs> Fucking Mona Lisa, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so then she does a song called LA Love Lala with YG yes. and DJ Mustard, which is like, what? LA got the people saying. First of all, it's giving very much two on. Yes. And it's also giving probably the worst product of Fergie runoff, which is Iggy Azalea. Is Iggy Azalea such a product of Fergie-ness in so many ways? And La La Land or whatever, LA Love is so fancy. Like I kept thinking about fancy. Yeah, you're totally right. The whole thing is just, she tries to do MILF money, which is oh my trying God. to get that old wacky feeling back with Polo to Don beat. She does another like reggae song. It's really unfortunate. And I don't know why she did it. Yeah. I think at this point it was so anticipated. I think she really seemed like she was working hard on it for a long time. There was a lot of missed release dates. This album had been in the works for a while. And I wonder if she just felt like she had to put something out. I don't know. It is a very, very weird record, I have to say. You know, sometimes listening to a record that's 50 minutes or an hour long speeds by. Like if you're listening to Renaissance and sometimes you're listening to a record that's a 50 minutes or an hour long and it feels like it takes up the entire day somehow and that was how the double touches felt to me yeah yesterday. it's just bad i don't know what worked pretty well on the duchess that just fails here but i felt like when she tried to emulate the thing she did on the duchess like on you already know or like it ain't nothing which are two kind of hip house songs that are like attempting to recapture the spirit of fergalicious or glamorous it feels stuck in 2006 and then when she tries to do new stuff it sounds weird hearing someone like fergie who i tie explicitly so much to 2006 
trying to do things that don't sound like 2006. So she's kind of like stuck in this, there's nowhere to go kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Like no one wants to hear Fergie doing future. Or like doing Trap House. Yeah, yeah. Trap House <laughs> or like Trap in the style of future. Yes. And I think this also is instructive to pop stars because I think immediately of Katy Perry and Migos. Yes, same year, literally. Yeah, and that shit kind of ended her music career, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or at least she hasn't done anything since then. Has she? Fact check me, please. Yeah, she has, but I mean, for all intents and purposes, Julianne, you're correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same year, and I think it really speaks to how audiences in 2017 just did not have any space in their lives for these sort of shoehorned in white women trying to do things that didn't sound natural to them. Yeah, she sounds very out of date. It just doesn't sound right at all. The whole thing just is wrong. Yeah. Also, last thing I'll say about the Double Duchess is her marriage to Josh Duhamel, which I think ended soon after this, sounds awful. There's a lot of songs on here that are just real depressing marital strife shit. Oh my God. I guess it's trying to capture the M.O.R. vibe of big girls, but it's just really depressing. Like, There's this song called Save It Till Morning that's basically like, I'm so sick of fighting with you that I need to go to sleep so we can fight about this in the morning. Who needs that in a pop song? Or there's a song called Love is Pain. (laughs) 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 All right. So maybe the last thing I want to talk about before we end our conversation is I think one of the things Fergie is most notable for at this point in her career is kind of like as a meme queen, like that meme of her doing the cartwheels on the Today Show while singing or the thing about her peeing her pants or like honestly her utterly notorious rendition of the national anthem. Yeah. I feel like we should just at least make mention of the fact that like the jokiness, the silliness of Fergie like lives on in some ways through meme culture more than anything else at this point. It's meme culture and also Glamorous was sampled by Jack Harlow in 2022. And that is almost like history folding in on itself because she became a meme after having a career sampling other people. And then here comes white rapper Jack Harlow (laughs) to sample the meme queen. It's very weird. It's so weird. I forgot about that. That's so true. I've been a throw up the sex in a uh-huh. And I can put you in. Frankly, that song is good because it's glamorous. It's so funny the way that that is. Literally, that entire Jack Harlow song is good because it's glamorous. Like, And glamorous is great. Yeah. I guess last question before we talk about the Pantheon is, what is Fergie's legacy? What will she be remembered for? What is her influence on pop music, pop stars, and the pop space in your mind? How have we seen the impact of Fergie on stars that come after? I mean, we've talked about Kesha and Iggy Azalea. That feels like two notable ways in which white women affected rap. Yeah. But like, do we 
see Fergie's legacy in notable ways? I mean, if you don't look too closely at all of her transgressions, right. there's something kind of charming about a sort of déclassé white lady just having a good time. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> no, it's like literally summing up the entire Real Housewives franchise. <laughs> like, it's... Oh my God, Bergie should go on Real Housewives. Oh my God, I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> I like, literally don't know how to respond. That's, that was just so funny. It's so true. <laughs> okay, so for so for his legacy is that it's sort of fun watching a day class say white lady. <laughs> okay, well I think that basically gets us So, Pop Pantheon, then, where does Fergie fit into the Pop Pantheon in your mind? What tier of the Pop Pantheon do we got to put our girl, Fergie Fergan, she love you long time, gong hit in the Pop Pantheon? So, I think we obviously have to put Fergie in tier four, working class pop stars. And I think we have to put her in tier four A flash in the pan. Yes. I'm going to say this. Okay. I think you're completely right. You're not going to get an argument from me on this. That one album, it was big. I do feel like, at least from my DJing perspective, those songs still go off. People love fucking hearing Fergalicious, London Bridge, and Glamorous in the club. They go off harder than I think any of the Black Eyed Peas songs do. They are indelible emblems of mid-aughts pop music to people. They are some of the most enduring songs from that period. I think their garish idiocy is part of what makes them that way. They're so memorable in their stupidity that I think that people enjoy hearing them in that sense and they still bang. And that album was really big. I think she fits right in here. I mean, it's one to two albums, three to five big hit singles. I think she has exactly that, that are recognizable to people that are not in the artist core fan base. She's indelible to people that grew up with her. What do you think is Fergie's signature song? Is it Fergalicious? Is it Glamorous? I would say Glamorous, but I think for most people, it's Fergalicious because it's her name. It's literally her name. Yeah, right. (laughs) All right. I think that's an undisputable place where she belongs. I'm going to bang the gavel on that. Last question for you. And if you don't have an answer for this julianne i have one okay is there an underrated fergie song <laughs> in her expansive <laughs> two album discography <laughs> that we can send the podcast out of i think that you should answer that because i just really do not have an answer <laughs> <laughs> so it's not mary jane shoes is what you're saying no <laughs> i actually would like to pick the song Tension from the Double Duchess, which was maybe the only mm. moment on this record that I didn't feel weird about. It's a disco song. It's produced by Alesso, weirdly, written by Justin Tranter and Winter Gordon. Love our girl Winter Gordon. And it kind of made me wonder, what would a latter period Fergie do in disco album sound like? Probably not a bad place for her to end up. Something that she could maybe attempt that would get her out of her sort of meme queen, jokey, silly thing and like actually give her a place to have fun that didn't feel like a joke. And yeah, it's also worth noting that the accompanying video to that song featured a cameo by Joanne the Scammer. <laughs> <laughs> At least she knows herself, okay? At least she knows yes. herself. 
as you said, Julianne, sometimes it's fun to watch a day-class-A white woman have fun. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> she just keeps putting herself in the era in which she's putting. What is more 2017 than Alesso and Joanne the Scammer? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's an emblem of her times, let's just say it. That's her legacy. Okay, so let's go out on Tension by Fergie from the erstwhile <laughs> double duchess. Julianne, this was a hoot and a holler as always. Thank you so much for doing this. I loved it. Thank you so much. We're now two of probably 40 to 50 people who have listened to the double duchess. In its entirety. In its entirety. All this tension that we can't control. Okay, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Fergie, a certified tier four working class pop star. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you to the fabulous Julianne Escobedo Shepard for being on the show this week, to Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week, to Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork, and PJ Bernietti for his help editing this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it. We're on social at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm a DJ L O U A E X I V. Merch at Pop Pantheon Pod. Com, Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon for weekly bonus episodes and more. Gorgeous, gorgeous February 3rd in New York and February 17th in Los Angeles. Tickets in the show notes of this episode. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Can't control.